Isaiah 53, verse 4, Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. Let's pray. Lord, this is your word. We ask (coughs) that you would give us wisdom as we look at it, that you would give us ears to hear, that you would give us minds to understand, you'd give us wills to obey, you would give us hearts to love. Lord, each of us comes here with different agendas, different thoughts, different ideas. May it be that all those things would be put aside as we truly do see Jesus and what you have done for us. If any here do not know you, we ask that they would come to know you. And for those who do, we ask, O Lord, that our knowledge would be deepened and strengthened, for to know you is to love you. We ask this in your name. Amen. Okay, we take communion, we celebrate the death of Jesus. That song, May I Never Lose the Wonder of the Cross, is for me a really important song because those of us who are Christians, we kind of buy into the teaching and the mantra about the cross, and our sins are forgiven because of what Jesus has done. But we want to move on to something else fairly quickly. One of the ways you see that is simple. You write a blog about the cross, and that's fine. But you write a blog about sexuality, or you write a blog about how to be a successful Christian business person, or something along those lines, and you get a lot more people who want to read it, and a lot, of Christ- a lot more Christians who want to read it. Why? because I think we do lose the wonder of the cross. In uh, the verses that we've got here, it's talking about something that's really important, the great substitution. Now, the devil is always seeking to undermine the gospel, and sadly, in the Christian church in Britain today, there's a big attack on what this idea of Jesus being our substitute, the whole idea of atonement, the whole idea of… what we call penal substitution, Jesus being punished in our place. One of the bits of advice I'd always give to a student is, just because it's a church doesn't necessarily mean that it's good. There are good churches in Dundee, but there are also rubbish churches. And people say, well, how can you say that? Well, I would, would, rubbish is mild, because I would go even further than that. I remember reading one church newsletter where the minister had written that the doctrine of substitutionary atonement was barbaric and pagan. It's the heart of the gospel. It's the essence of the gospel, as we will see. So, one of the advice I would always give to somebody when you're thinking about a church is look for a church that teaches the Bible. They can differ on secondary issues. Um, We have, uh, astonishing as you may think it, there are people in the church here who don't agree with everything I say, and it's a bit of a shock uh, sometimes that people can be so unwise. But, no, we don't. We, we disagree about lots of different things. I mean, if you want to fight about baptism, that's fine. I can get a couple of people here, and they can join in with you. Um, if you want to fight about the rapture, and if you want to fight about Israel and Palestine, we can do that too. Uh, there's all different things that we can If you want to argue about politics, we can do that as well. You want to argue about versions of the Bible, we can do that also. That's, these are all secondary issues. But there are core issues there are basic issues. There are, dare I say it, fundamental issues. And <coughs> this is one of them, the cross of Jesus Christ. Paul says, we preach Christ crucified. 
And I would say, no matter the denomination, never touch a church which does not believe in the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. And if you're saying, well, those are big words, I don't know what they mean. And if you're a student, well, you're a student. You're mega intelligent. Go work it out. Look it up in dictionary or speak to us afterwards. But it's just what I'm going to tell you here. It's a very simple and straightforward teaching that Christ died in our place. It's a great biblical teaching that's shot through the Bible. If you go, for example, to Leviticus 16, you'll find that whole teaching about substitution. Um, We have a a young man who's just become a Christian uh, in the congregation here, and uh, Ralph is away down in, we were praying for him, he's away down in Edinburgh just now in Nidri, and he's doing a course there. And it's 60 days with the cross is the course. And it's helping him with a lot of the issues that he has. But it was great to talk to him, and I mentioned this last Sunday, when he's saying, it's amazing. He says, in the Old Testament, they had this goat, and, and all the sins were laid upon that goat, and, it was, and that's like Jesus. That's what Jesus did for us. And you think, how does learning about a goat, and how does learning about a sacrifice, how does that help with our lives today? Well, it is absolutely fundamental, and it is absolutely crucial. So I want to consider, first of all, what Jesus did. He took up our infirmities and he carried our sorrows. We sang about that in I Stand Amazed in the Presence of Jesus the Nazarene. Matthew 8 verse 14 says this, when Jesus came into Peter's house, he saw Peter's mother-in-law lying in bed with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her and she got up and began to wait on him. When evening came, many who were demon-possessed were brought to him and he drove out the spirits with a word and healed the sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets. He took up our infirmities and carried our diseases. What Jesus was doing on the cross was absolutely extraordinary. Isaiah uses words deliberately. Our infirmities, our weaknesses, our illnesses, our sorrows. He dealt with every aspect of that, our transgressions, our sins, our iniquities. They all come together on the cross. Infirmities and sorrows that blight our lives, moral and spiritual wrongs that alienate, alienate God. He, he took them. He bent down to lift them up and, in a sense, put them on his own back. You will face many sorrows in this life. Uh, I had a, uh, a girl, a student who came to the church here, a very different church background to the one here, She's a, a, a great person. And I asked her once, why, why do you come to this church? We were just having a, a coffee in one of my offices. And I said, why do you come to this church? And she said, well, she gave me a couple of reasons. But the second one was, because you allow me to be miserable. And I laughed and said, huh, that's going to look great, isn't it? The poster outside, the church that allows you to be miserable. That's really going to attract lots of people. And she said, no, no, don't make a joke of it. She said, I'm being serious. She said, I suffer from depression, and sometimes I get really discouraged, and it's really hard when you go to church or you go to see you, and people ask how you are, and you say you're miserable, and they try and cast a demon out of you, or worse still, they try and cheer you up, or they, they, try, or they back off from you altogether. And she said, what I really, really liked was coming into the church, and she said, you just let me be miserable. And that was actually extremely helpful. So I, I thought about that a lot, and I, and I think... There's an element of truth in that. If, if we're going to be realistic, maybe you're not a Christian 
or maybe actually you are a Christian, you want to present the gospel to someone, whatever you do, don't present the gospel to people as though it were, come to Jesus and you'll be happy all your life, because you won't. And that's not how it works. Jesus actually made an extraordinary claim. He said, if you want to follow me, you better take up your cross and follow me. And that's the last thing that anyone would want to do is take up a cross. But what Jesus is doing when he takes up our cross, when he takes up his cross, is he's carrying our burdens, our infirmities, our weaknesses, even our sicknesses on that cross with him. Sickness and sorrow mar our lives. Someone puts it this way, we wish for more than we are able to achieve so that the good life is always eluding us. We long for a truly happy life, but are constantly bolted by sorrow in whatever form it may come, disappointment, bereavement, tragedy, whatever. But he made our burdens his. When I was a student not so long ago, I was in Edinburgh Uni, and uh, for a while I served on a student welfare council, and I've never ever forgotten the year that I was on it, that during that year we had nine, not nine attempted suicide, but nine suicides. And we never publicized them. We were never allowed to publicize them because the minute we publicized them, they believed, and I think rightly, that there would be copycat things. But you've got it all. You know, you're young and you're fit and you're healthy and you're at university and, and life seems to be great. And yet people don't know how to cope with sorrow and with disappointment and with fears and with doubts. Jesus, he takes up our infirmities. He carries our sorrows. And I'm going to say a little bit more about that in a moment, but I just think it is, it is, it is a wonderful thing that if you are here this evening, no matter who you are, no matter what background you have, that if you are really struggling with confusion and pain and hurting and suffering and bitterness that Christ, you can, you can take your burdens to Christ and you can give them to Christ because Christ carried them already on the cross. That's what he did. He, carried, he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. What did we think of him? We considered him to be stricken by God smitten by him and afflicted. The word that's used there is a Hebrew word that often refers to leprosy. And there was a tradition that the Messiah would have leprosy. And if you had leprosy in those days, you were left alone. You were isolated. You were estranged. We would tend to think, well, if, if, if Jesus carried our sins and our, our, our sorrows, surely we would love him. Surely that'd be a wonderful thing. But the suffering of Jesus, although it was enormously physical, and if you've seen Mel Gibson's The Passion, uh, you understand a little bit of the physicality of it. But I don't think that The Passion gets the, the real extent, the real depth of the suffering, which is not physical, but it is spiritual, it is emotional, it is being rejected by his friends, and ultimately feeling rejected by God, his Father. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? All day long I have been plagued, says the psalmist prophesying of Christ. I have been punished every morning. One writer puts it this way, we should have been horror struck at ourselves, the guilty ones, and filled with loving admiration for him, the sin bearer. But when we see the cross, we're horrified at the cross and not 
at ourselves. Our attitude to Jesus Christ is supremely important. What happened to him? Let me just explain what I, what I said about what penal substitution and what, and what that is. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. By his wounds we are healed. Psalm 109 verse 22 says, For I am poor and needy, and my heart is wounded within me. He was pierced for our transgressions. I don't like crucifixes. What I mean by crucifixes is a crucifix with Jesus on it that has him kind of looking, kind of serene. There's some blood, there's a crown of thorns, and so on, but it's, it's turned into some kind of, of figure, image, that almost you bow down to. But I don't like it because it doesn't get the cross. Not really. In Isaiah 53, rather in Isaiah 52, right back at the, in verse 14, it says, there were many who were appalled at him. His appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man and his form, his form marred beyond human likeness. I don't know if you've ever seen anyone incredibly disfigured because of a fire or incredibly disfigured because of suffering. You can't help but be horrified. What this is saying is the only physical description that we have of Jesus in the Bible is one that says he was so ugly that we couldn't look at him. It was so distorted, so perverted, so horrible that we instinctively turn away our heads and our eyes and go, no, we can't look, we can't see. But there's something going on in Christ which is even more than that. It's the piercing of his heart as well as the piercing of his body. It's when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane and he sweats, as it were, great drops of blood, pleading that the cup would be taken from him if that were possible. But if it wasn't possible, he was willing to go along for our sakes with what God had said. And he went along with it. And when he's on the cross and he cries out in agony, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It is the most appalling cry of dereliction, of loneliness, of pain, of suffering, of blackness, of darkness that you will ever hear, and you will never experience anything like it. There was an old, somewhat eccentric free church minister in the 19th century called Rabbi Duncan. His, well, it was his nickname, um, Rabbi, not being Robert, but Rabbi as Rabbi, teacher. And... Uh, he had a lot of pithy sayings, but one of them, I remember, just really struck me, and it was this. He said, there's no pit so deep that Christ has not been deeper still. We have people in the church here, maybe you're one of them, who've experienced great sorrow, great loss, great blackness, great hurt, You can't come to Christ and say, but Lord, you don't understand. You've never been through that. That may be true for other people, but Christ has been there. He was pierced for our transgressions. The word transgression just simply means the willfulness and rebelliousness of sin, the deliberate flouting of the Lord and His law. He was crushed. That was a word that was used of people literally being crushed to death. It was another way to kill people they had. They killed people um, on the cross, but they also had a means whereby they could actually just put people between two stones and literally crush them to death. And it says, he was crushed. Why? Why was he crushed? 
He was crushed for our iniquities. We find that really, really hard to take. What did I do? I didn't do anything that deserved the Son of God to be crushed. That's one of the problems when you don't get the doctrine of sin. You don't get the doctrine of hell. You then don't get the doctrine of Christ, and you don't get the doctrine of the cross, and you don't get the doctrine of Christ's love. You turn Christ's love into meaningless mush. But when you understand why Christ… Christ wasn't dying to give us an example how to die. Christ wasn't dying because it was some kind of masochistic death wish. Christ died because He had to, and He had to because of my sin and because of your sin. And that's what happens. He deals with our sinful state. He deals with our alienation from God. He deals with our broken personhood. The punishment that brought us peace was upon Him. The peace punishment, the punishment that was necessary to secure our peace with God, our shalom with God, the word which means whole and complete peace, not just physical healing, but um, mental healing and spiritual healing and relational healing. One dictionary describes shalom as this, personal fulfillment, harmonious society, and a secure relationship with God. Isaiah had begun this whole section of the suffering servant by talking about a peace that had been lost in chapter 48, for example, and verse 18. If only you had paid attention to my commands, your peace would have been like a river, your righteousness like the waves of the sea. The servant becomes forward because the wicked cannot enjoy peace. 49, verse 1. Sorry, uh, 49, verses uh, 5 and 6. He says, listen to me. He says there is, in verse 22 of 48 as well, there is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. The servant comes forward because the wicked cannot enjoy peace. So how do we get peace with God? You will never get peace with God by doing lots of good things, you will never get peace with God by coming to church. You will never get peace with God by leading lots of, reading lots of the Bible. You will never get peace with God by running away from Him. You will never get peace with God by saying you don't believe in Him. That's not how you get peace, and you won't get peace or a harmonious society with anyone else, not anything real, not anything lasting, without Christ. Now, we are told because of what Jesus does that there is peace that is brought. There is healing, infirmities and sorrows that blight our lives. What does all of that teach us? I think I want to take just a couple of basic lessons from it, and it would be to say this. I have to emphasize the seriousness of sin. Sin's kind of the word that Christians want to push aside a lot, partly because we don't understand it, partly because we want to get on to the nice bits. We think it's not nice, partly because we often use church and the Bible as part of our comfort zone. But the problem that's wrong with us and the problem that's wrong with our culture and our society, it is human sin. People argue about politics. Listen, I was accused this week of being a communist. Um, I think communism is great if it wasn't for human beings. It's like a teacher. Being a teacher would be great if you didn't have any pupils. 
You know, it'd be a great job. Um, I think capitalism's great if it wasn't for human beings because it's human beings who screw things up. There's one of these uh, traders who's... Uh, I saw a list in the magazine of traders who've lost billions of pounds to people. You can't trust in systems because systems are run by human beings and human beings just get things wrong. And it's not just other human beings. It's not just them out there. It's me and what's in me. If what Isaiah calls our iniquities are just errors that we have made and so in the light of human standards we're not all that we could be, that's one thing. But why would that result in the death of Jesus as our substitute? It wouldn't. Sin is something that is far more serious. Sin is something that's against God and only then can this passage make any sense at all. We are dealing with something that is really, really deep. But you see, our problems are really deep, and the only way that we can deal with them is by getting to the root and to the heart of the problems. Let me again offer a word of advice to those who are visiting here as freshers. Uh, Do not look for a church where you feel comfortable. I mean, we've got nice seats. We used to have really hard pews. Uh, That's not the kind of comfort I'm talking about. I'm talking about don't look for a church where every time you go, you come out with your ego being massaged, feeling good about yourself. Now, you're not looking for a church to beat you up either. You're not looking to always feel miserable in a church. You're just looking for reality and for truth. And when God comes and God is present in our midst, there's a sense of His awesomeness, there's a sense of His holiness, and there is a genuine and real sense of our unworthiness. Not self-deprecation and all being about ourselves, but just we become deeply conscious of who God is. And in the light of His holiness, even our good works seem like filthy rags. So we emphasize the seriousness of sin, but we also emphasize solidarity. Look what's happening here. He took up our infirmities. He carried our sorrows. There's a confession that's being made. We recognize that that's what he is doing. It's not his sins. It's not his sorrows. It's our infirmities, our sorrows, our afflictions, our transgressions, our punishment. And in exchange for that, he takes all of that of us and he gives to us his joy, his healing, his peace. Healing being that complete freedom from all the things that caused the servant to die. He gives us the peace of God that passes understanding. He gives us the fruit of the Spirit and the redemption of the body, the renewal of our spirits. He gives us even healing in relationships for this life. And it all comes from Christ. You may have particular problems, and it's, it's good to be able to sit with people and to talk through the particular issues and the particular problems, and they can really help you different kinds of counseling, different kinds of advice, friendship, care, concern, and love. But the heart of the problem, as the cliche goes, is the problem of the human heart. And there isn't a single counselor, and there isn't a single philosophy, there isn't a singleism, there isn't a a, a single human being who can deal with the problem of the human heart. The only person who does that is Jesus Christ. And this is not saying as people so often misunderstand this, that if you become a Christian, you never have any problems. But it is saying when you become a Christian, you have 
the means to deal with those problems and difficulties. Because the greatest thing of all that's being dealt with is my sin and your sin. Some of you are visitors, and this is a story I've told many times because I was just so struck by it. I do a, a debates and discussions in various places, and I was in Borders in Dundee when it was still Borders, and there was a lady who asked me at the end of the talk, there was lots of questions, and she asked me the last question. We made it the last question. She said, David, how can you possibly know that God loves you? And I told her about the cross. I told her about what Jesus did. And she sat there, and I'll never forget her face, because her eyes were wide open and her mouth was open, and she was completely stunned by what she heard. Uh, I remember the reaction of some Christians who were there looking at her face going, wow. And I said, yeah, wow, because she's really getting it. And do you know what she said at the end? She said, David, if that's true, she said, I'm not saying I believe it, but if it's true, that's the most wonderful thing I've ever heard. You will never hear anything greater than the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. You will never experience a deeper love. You will never have a greater assurance. You will never have anything more wonderful happen for you or to you than that. You are going to spend eternity being stunned by the lamb at the center of the throne, looking as if it had been slain. And yet in this life, we so often take our eyes away from that. My prayer is that whoever we are, whatever our circumstances, whatever our joys and sorrows, that this evening we take that seriously. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the gospel, the good news that doesn't seem like good news to start with, that it's about our iniquities and our transgressions and our sin and our lack of peace and our brokenness. And yet, we rejoice that the gospel is not that we heal ourselves, not that we forgive ourselves, but that Jesus was sent into this world to give us eternal life. We bless you, O Lord, that he took our punishment, he took our iniquities, he took our sins and our sorrows, and he carried them all on the cross. And we thank you for your justice that means we are not answerable for them anymore as we trust in him, that we are forgiven. We are considered to be righteous. We receive his righteousness and his joy and his peace. Lord, may that be true for every single person here, for we ask it in your name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk That's www.stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, as well as Christian commentary on the latest current affairs in Scotland, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solace-cpc.org Once again, that's www.solas-cpc.org Thanks for listening.